Let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23. And tonight we continue our study of Abraham and we are nearing the end of our study. There's just a few weeks left for us, just a few chapters of the Bible, yet covering nearly the last 40 years of his life before we see him buried in a cave in Canaan. On the way, we'll hit a few major life events yet to come, including the joy of the marriage of his only beloved son, Isaac, to Rebecca. But first, before that joy, tonight we see his sorrow, as tonight we see his wife, Sarah, goes the way of all the earth. And so we consider her death and her burial and what we learn about our God. Let me invite you to give your attention from Genesis chapter 23. Hear now the word of God. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. 
So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of this city. And this Abraham, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts to it. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Lord and our God, we pray that you would meet with us this evening and that you would richly bless the hearing and the preaching of this word and shape us and mold it, mold us by it for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's this really all about? Surely there's more here than lawyerly cautionary hints about contractual obligations. You know, make sure you get it signed on the dotted line. Or the need for a good title company. I mean, you never know what liens stand against that field for years to come. Make sure you really own it. Or um, how to wheel and deal in the Middle East. How to make friends and influence people. Surely there's got to be more than that. More than, oh, I don't know, how a good real estate agent ought to keep you from making a full price purchase when a little negotiation would really help. Or how, how grieving people can be taken advantage of by unscrupulous people up selling the gold-plated casket. Or what might otherwise be sound advice to make your end-of-life arrangements before the end without the pressure of time and the stress of grief. Surely there's more here than those things. And there is. This is a text for the people of God what is God showing us in this text? And I want you to, I want to highlight three things this evening with you. In verses 1 and 2, God is reminding us about our common sorrow as Abraham weeps for his wife. In verses 3 to 5, we're reminded about our common pilgrimage as it is said of Abraham He's but an alien stranger in this world, in that land. And then in verses 7 to 20, 6 to 20, we're reminded about our uncommon God's faithfulness to his common people. Those three things, verses 1 and 2 in the first place, we share, we see this, we share a common sorrow as believing people. It's the way of all the earth. Verses 1 and 2, Sarah lived 127 years. These are the years of her life, and she died at Kiriath Arba. That's one name. That is Hebron. That's the newer name, the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in and mourned 
for her and wept over her. This is a common sorrow, but there's nothing common about the death. It's a special death. It's uh, highlighted in an unusual way to show you the importance of Sarah because, in fact, in the whole Bible, she's the only woman whose age at death is recorded, though you'll find a whole host of men where that's the case. It highlights her importance. She's singled out. She grew, obviously, very old because God gave her a long life. God also very graciously allowed her to live long enough to see her her beloved son, her only son, Isaac, grow to be a man of about 36 or 37 years old, though it'll be just a few years she dies before he's married. And there is a sense here in which Sarah is more than just the mother of Isaac, but the mother of the people of God in the world. She's the matriarch of the Hebrews. She's the matriarch of the people of faith. The Old and the New Testaments both look back on her in admiration. And I I just want to point out the two places it does so. It's interesting, as others have noted, that, that the Bible never explicitly commands us to follow the example of Mary, wonderful and godly as it is, but it does specifically highlight two ways in which Sarah is an example for us. One's in the old, one's in the new. The first is in the old, Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who bore you. For he was one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. The children of Israel were to look back at father Abraham and mother Sarah, the rock from which they were hewn, and to follow their example of belief. Then you also get in 1 Peter chapter 3, as we've seen, as we've been reading Peter, but it bears reading again. Peter says to Christians and to especially Christian women and Christian women who are married, he says, do not let your adorning, this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 6, some of it's to all women and some specifically to married women. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now that's very contrary to the spirit of our age, of course. But the Bible is saying it's a beautiful picture of Sarah's godliness as a wife to, let's face it, a difficult man who put her through some really troubling times. She adorned her trust in God. She made it look glorious, not by her outward appearance, though she was in her day a strikingly beautiful woman. Nothing wrong with that. But her godliness and her beauty 
adorned the gospel through her submission to her husband out of love for this God. So this great woman dies. This great woman dies and Abraham is left to sorrow. They had wandered the promised land together for some 60 years or so. They had been married likely upwards of nearly 100 years. And so what does he do? He mourns her passing. He weeps for his loss. And then he buries his dead. This is what we do. We share a common sorrow. I was reading of a story of a soldier's wife who was contacted by the army to be informed that her husband had been killed. She wept with her mother as she held in her hand the telegram that told this to her. And then she said to her mother, I'm going to go up into my room. She didn't want to be disturbed. Her mother called her own husband, the woman's father, to break the news to him and to come home and straight away from work. And so he gets home. He wants to see his daughter upstairs. So he goes up and quietly opens the door and she's kneeling by her bed. Telegram spread out before her with the news of her husband's death. And she's saying, oh, my heavenly father. Oh, my father, my heavenly father. And he quietly closes the door and he goes back downstairs and his wife says to him, how is she? And she, he says, she's in better hands than mine. Abraham wept over Sarah's death. He placed his grief in his father's care. And the passage reminds us we all are not untouched by the miseries of life common to man. It doesn't mean if you're a believer that you get spared these hard things. All the world is a hospital, says Jeff Thomas, and every person is a terminal patient. And that's true. Just because we're Christians Christians doesn't mean we don't mourn. Doesn't mean we don't have feelings. Doesn't mean we don't feel our loss. It is right to do so. And the more you have loved someone and lost someone, the more you weep. And for believers like Sarah, we can grieve and with hope. Because of Sarah's great descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Because he died, and yet he also rose. When a Christian called Stanley Collins was fighting in the Second World War, he had a friend uh, who, uh, he and his friend came across a landmine, and they tiptoed gently around it on their way back to their barracks. And then uh, later in the day, Stanley arrived at the barracks in the evening, and he passed by his friend who's, who was sleeping on his bunk, and his head was laid upon that same landmine. He was horrified until, of course, he discovered, which you can imagine, that the firing pin had t- been taken out, and it was now as safe as a pillow. What had been an instrument of destruction had become a headrest for a weary soldier. Death is transformed in the instrument of death is transformed because the Lord Jesus has taken the sting out of death and has given us victory over the grave. We grieve, we miss, but we can grieve with hope as believers in the Lord Jesus. We share a common sorrow and a common hope. 
Now the second thing we see is this. We also share a common pilgrimage as the people of God. You begin to see this in verse 3 as Abraham begins to negotiate for a burial place. He rises from his uh, bed he, uh, from before his dead. He goes to the Hittites and he says to them what? Verse 4, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answer him, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. Now, whatever the locals may think of him, and they call him a prince of God. And no matter what kind of very evident wealth and influence he had in the world, he still confesses, I am but a stranger and a foreigner in this land. He knows his status. He understands that he's a kind of resident alien without all the rights of citizenship. A sojourner means he doesn't enjoy citizenship rights. He's someone who has abandoned his homeland, but he hasn't become a citizen of the Hittites. And foreigner here means he's a stranger, a man who has no land of his own, but has settled on the land of others like a tenant. He doesn't own a single piece of property in the promised land at this point. That's how he lived. That's what he was. And though they may have honored him with a title that put him at the top of the social ladder, they still expected him to continue to live at the bottom of that ladder. And so they flatter him, O Prince of God, and they make a genuine offer, undoubtedly of a place, but not a place of his own. And the Bible wants us to see that all God's people are in this kind of a position in this world. We are like Abraham, foreigners and strangers in a strange land. In Leviticus chapter 25, uh, the Lord God, Yahweh, says to his people Israel that they are to think of themselves this way. 20, Leviticus 25, 23, for the land is mine, the Lord says, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And then the Apostle Peter, again, 1 Peter 2, as we've been reading, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, he says, I urge you as what? Sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which make war against your soul. So there it is. Again, this is how we are to think of ourselves. Now, Ralph Davis pointed out an interesting irony from history that's just a little fascinating I want to share with you. Carl Ludwig Schmidt, he was a New Testament professor in Germany in the uh, 1930s. He was invited to contribute an article on uh, the, the Greek word for sojourner. And uh, it, it, was, it was to appear in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It's a work that's ten volumes thick. It came out in the early 1930s. And uh, Schmidt had already uh, made some rather public criticisms of the Nazis at that time. And uh, you know that the Nazis didn't much care for public criticism. And so uh, those in power took away his uh, chair in the university. Uh, They banished him from the fatherland and they stripped him of all his citizenship rights for his mere words against the Nazis. Well, he finishes the article then 
for the dictionary on the Greek word for sojourner after he himself is a sojourner in Switzerland. It's an interesting irony. And it's not the only example. As you know, today in the Middle East, we are seeing nations overrun by Islamic terrorists who are driving out all kinds of people, of course. But we have Syrian brothers and sisters, and we have Iraqi brothers and sisters, and we have Libyan brothers and sisters all over who are living this life, sojourners in foreign lands. How do we live then? How does Peter expect us to live? We live with the faith of Abraham in this world. Hebrews chapter 11 says Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundation whose architect and builder is God. Abraham wasn't just looking for a small plot of land in the promised land as his only hope. But he was, as Hebrews goes on to say, having acknowledged he was a stranger in exile in the earth, he desired a better country, a heavenly country. Therefore, Hebrews says, God is not ashamed to call him uh, or to be called his God. For he has prepared that city. And that city is coming, friends. And we are to live with the faith of Abraham and hope of that place. In the midst of and in the face of all the trials and testings, suffering, or whatever persecution may come. We can have assurance and we can have comfort and we are to live in this hope. Because some of you remember Boris Becker the German tennis player. He won Wimbledon at the age of 17 at the time, was the youngest male uh, winner of that. I don't know if it's been beaten since. Well, Boris Becker, in one of his Wimbledon appearances, uh, played in an upset match where he got beat, and afterwards the TV interviewer, you know, stuck a microphone in his face and wanted to talk about you know, relive the moments and, and talk about what happened and, uh, and, and asked him what went wrong, you know, with a very serious face. Well, his blue eyes opened wide in surprise. Wrong, he said. Nothing has gone wrong. Nobody has died. I lost a tennis match. It's not a catastrophe. It was a tennis loss. He saw it for what it was. And that's the way sojourners and foreigners, exiles in this world are to live. Look, it's not that we don't have emotions. It's not that we don't have ambitions. It's not that we don't have deep sorrows of heart. It's not that we don't have big dreams for success. But we can hold the things of this world and its accolades loosely. We have, says Ralph Davis, the flexibility about the twists and turns our lives take, a sanctified nonchalance about making their mark. For this world is not our home. We are but pilgrims passing through. And we share that in common with Abraham. That's the second thing. Now the third and final thing is we see our uncommon God's faithfulness to his very common people. Verses 7 through 20, you have the continuation and eventually the completion 
of the transaction as Abraham purchases a burial site. And there is a sign here. And it's a small sign, granted, but it is a genuine sign of God's faithfulness to him. Now you might miss that sign by enjoying or puzzling over the details of the transaction itself. And I am leaning heavily upon those who have read the ancient Hittite contractual real estate obligations and who tell us what the customs and practices of the day would have been. There's a a little interesting back and forth here. Uh, Abraham, verse 14, asks for property that he may bury his dead. Verse 6, they offer him the use of a borrowed plot of land as if to say Abraham you are to remain but what you are among us we don't want you to have citizen rights we don't want you to own anything around here but we will certainly put Sarah's body in a good place you pick the best one you can find you're welcome to it well Abraham doesn't want that verses 7 and 9 he makes a counter offer he the prince of God among them bows low to them this is uh, they flattered him, certainly, but he is not totally buying it. But he is honoring them in return, as custom would have dictated, respecting their position. They are, this is all happening, by the way, very publicly at the city gate where these kinds of transactions took place. And so because it's public, uh, there are all these witnesses to what happens here. So what does he do? He calls out a man by name, Ephron, the son of Zohar. Verse 9, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. Abraham, wisely here, knows that, you know, it's easy for a crowd of people to stand against someone. But but it's harder for one man with money on the line to do the same. He asks for one man because that man has a potential payoff that's big. I'll pay full price, Abraham says. He doesn't ask for a discount. So Ephron responds, verse 11. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. And I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now that, that on its face seems very great. I'm going to get a field to go with the cave I've asked for, and he's going to give it to me. Why not take it? Well, first of all, this is, again, part of the negotiation. Abraham offers full price. The man offers a gift. They will meet in the middle somewhere is what Ephron himself is thinking. But also Abraham is thinking, I want possession. I want to own it. And a gift would have been or would have left Ephron's heirs with the, with the right to reclaim the property in a later generation, according to the laws and customs of that day. It, it, it could have been a fine gift for the lifespan of Abraham or the lifespan of Ephron, I'm not sure, but it would have reverted, potentially, if anybody asked for it. So Abraham wanted to own it free and clear. says, verse 13, I give you the price of the field. What about the price? Price? Ephron says... Hmm, did somebody say price? Oh, you know, what's a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver between you and me? Let's not stand, let that stand between us. I mean, we are men of means. We are men of wealth. It's just 400 shekels. Now, 
we are to understand that the price he has just named is massive. 400 shekels sounds like, even to our ears, a lot of silver, and it is. It's true, it's difficult to know exactly how much that is, again, relying on economists and historians here, but uh, one of my Old Testament professors, an archaeologist of ancient Near Eastern stuff, and look, he says, you know, as you can imagine, the value of silver, the value of money, and the value of land go up and down and fluctuate over the years based on time and conditions and uh, well, location, location, location and such. And we know that if you even look into Jeremiah, Jeremiah paid 17 shekels for a field that he bought from his cousin. Now granted, that was outside Jerusalem when it was possibly going to be overrun by enemies. Uh, we know that Omri purchased Samaria, the entire vast expanse of it, for 6,000 shekels. There are other examples. Again, it's, it's hard to be certain, but, but certainly it was expected that Abraham would negotiate this price down, and therefore the initial offering price is rather high. But Abraham is savvy, and he is determined, and again, he knows if he doesn't pay full price, even then the heirs could eventually reclaim it. For Hittite law, again, in a land transaction of less than market value, could have the descendants of the seller, should they run into economic and financial trouble, they could sue and win back the land that had been you know, improperly distributed. So Abraham immediately says, 400 shekels of silver, done. And he weighs it out according to the weights of the merchants. There were weights of kings too, but this was all upright and legal according to the merchants. So, to sum it all up, verses 17 to 20, there's a long kind of repetition here of what just happened, and it's in the language, again, relying on others, It's actually in the language of a Hittite real estate contract deal. That's why you get all these interesting little details thrown in. Verse 17, so the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field, you know, throughout the whole area. Well, this was made over to him, to Abraham as a possession and in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in the gate of the city. This isn't some private deal people can renege on. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. There you go. Did you hear some of the repetition? The field of the cave is where? It's in Hebron. Where is Hebron? It's in Canaan. And it was made over to him as property. Sarah died in Canaan. Sarah was buried in Canaan. Abraham finally, after his wife is dead, finally owns an actual parcel of property. Where? In the promised land. And what is it? It's a burial cave. It's a sign, and a very small sign at that, of God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise 
to Abraham. It may be small potatoes, but it is but a foretaste of a much greater feast yet to come. And don't despise the day of small things. Something small can be a huge encouragement. A man named Ron Enroth wrote a book in which he tells about Brian and Cindy who had uh, made a break and left a very kind of dictatorial and destructive, oppressive church group. And so what did they do? As people do in those situations, they fled. They fled to a big city, to St. Louis, to get away, away from the vicinity of that church group. But Brian, and knowing that it might be difficult for him to find a job, and it was, they were willing to do it. And so a difficult period ensued. And Cindy testifies that God's provision never failed. One hot summer day, she says, when she was recovering from the flu and wanted some orange juice, but they couldn't afford it, luxury, she and Brian were walking down Grand Avenue in St. Louis, apparently in the middle of the afternoon that day. No one else was in sight. And a can of frozen orange juice came rolling down the sidewalk, still with frost on its sides. And they looked around to see who it could belong to, and they could find nobody. So Brian turned to her and said, Honey, I think that's for you. Pretty small stuff. A can of orange juice. But for them, a big sign of the kindness of God. A kind of promise that he was going to take care of her. That is what Abraham has here. And so, not only will Sarah, but likewise Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah and Jacob all be buried in this camp, in this cave, in a parcel in the promised land. It's a testimony to Abraham's hope in the promise. He knew this is what God had promised him, a foretaste of it. And when he was silent in the grave, the cave of Machpelah cried out, there is no obstacle to his possession of all God's promises. And now you know that goes well beyond the promised land of Canaan, but the restored and renewed universe in the new heavens and the new earth with the new Jerusalem, all of it is promised to the believer. And how do we get that? Will you remember that with the coming of Christ, Abraham's offspring, all the promises of God are yes and amen. And if we are in Christ, we are heirs with Christ of all the promises. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 says, For all things are yours, whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. It's all ours in Jesus. And what is the sign for us of God's faithfulness to us to fulfill his promise? Well, the now we see is a glass through a glass as through a glass darkly. Though now we see only with the eyes of faith, but one day yet to come we will see face to face. We have a sign. And what is it? It is a deposit. It is a deposit guaranteeing the full amount. And what is that? It is the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. He, uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this. When you heard the gospel, when you believed in Christ, verse 13, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee or, or down payment or earnest money, if you know that term, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In other words, God has actually placed in you that which has come from Him in the fullness of the true and everlasting promised land. And He has placed it in you because Christ has purchased it for you by His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension and set His Spirit to live inside of you as that down payment. And this token of God's faithfulness may be to the world around us small, insignificant, or unrecognizable. But to the eyes of faith, the Spirit of God is all we need to be certain of yet more good to come as God has promised because He's faithful. He's a great God. Let's worship Him. Let's pray. Father, we delight in You. We make our boast in Christ all we could ever want is in and through Him, not of our own doing, not of our own works, but by grace, through faith in Jesus. We bless You. And I pray You would strengthen the weary and grant us new determination to persevere in resting in You, looking to You, leaning on You, hoping in You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.